Hi, this is DebtWire Managing Editor Andrew Ragsley, and you're listening to episode 10 of our DebtWired series. You are about to hear Deputy Editor Reshmi Basu's conversation with David Prager. David is Managing Director and Head of the U.S. Restructuring Advisory Practice with Kroll. Over the course of his career, David has represented debtor and creditor mandates in a number of high-profile workouts. Company side highlights include Energy Future Holdings and Toys R Us. Along the creditor side, he's taken on complex corporate situations such as SEM Group and MBIA. He's also done some municipal creditor mandate work with Puerto Rico and Detroit. David's conversation with us goes over a number of key topics, including the latest on the SPAC trends, implications of Greensill, forecasting and valuation challenges heading out of the pandemic. He also lays out the type of lender-on-lender animosity that's prone to break out in times such as these where liquidity is abundant and yield is not. David, thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure. I'm delighted to join you today. Are you surprised by the lack of restructuring activity? Well, you know, for years, money's been pouring into these distressed funds that have been waiting on the sidelines for, for the opportunity to pounce. And so as we look, came into the pandemic, there was just so much money sitting on the sidelines that even for the most unstable and uncertain credits, there were more lenders than borrowers. And now a year later, that continues today. There are just too few opportunities and the investors are racing to the bottom for a chance to set even the smallest glimpse of yield. And that leaves us in the slowest restructuring cycle, certainly for middle market and larger companies, uh, the slowest cycle in probably the last 15 years. So many deals are getting done with no covenants. What do you think about this? What are the negatives and maybe the positives? Yeah, so. This is another result of the competition just to get to the table. If you can't get there on pricing, get there on covenants. It's a race to the bottom. It really feels like the 2006-2007 cycle, uh, and that led to the no covenants and basically no underwriting environment, which basically led us to the 2008 financial crisis. During and following that financial crisis, I was the interim CFO at Monoline Insurance and Cora. And we started diving into what went wrong with, with the RMBS world. And we found that investors in 06 and 07 were funding deals where the collateral wasn't even designated until post closing. You were lending to deals with no idea who was going to repay you. And we're certainly heading in that direction now, that to repeat these low underwriting standards. How does the SPAC craziness kind of play into the debt and restructuring markets? So far, what we're seeing is this craziness is just pushing up values. Whether you're a SPAC target or not, it's tons of money rushing into a limited number of investments and values and multiples are, are going up quickly. And we're telling our clients is. If you're a company on the edge, you should consider monetizing your investments or right-sizing your capital structure while the opportunity is hot. One of the great advantages of this market is is that companies can recapitalize. And we're working with a lot of companies right now to attend to both financial and non-financial liabilities, mass tort liabilities and the like, making sure you use this favorable market environment to right-size their capital structure and, and the corporate org chart. 
What are the risks that come with these SPACs? Well, the real motivation around the SPAC craze for companies that are looking to go public is they can do it in a faster timeline and with less scrutiny than the traditional IPO process. That's another way of saying there's lack of transparency, and lack of transparency always presents risk. While the vast majority of these situations will be honest and successful operations, we're we're very concerned about what's being swept under the rugs. It's only a matter of time before liquidity tightens, and we'll see what was hiding in the wings in these SPACed companies. Some will turn out to have secret closets, and we're working with our clients, both the issuers and investors, to find those closets and make sure there's no skeletons hiding in them. What will trigger the next distressed cycle? As ironic as it seems, the return to normalcy, the return to the office, will likely be a large credit negative. We've seen this prolonged period of uncertainty, and what's been happening is the market has assumed that every company is a winner. As we get back to our normal operations, there's going to be a comeuppance where companies will have to prove their viability. I figure we'll see the front end of the distress cycle coming somewhere in the fourth quarter of this year, after we've had a quarter or so of people coming back into the office, going back to living their lives, hopefully in in the normal way. And we start to see that first set of results from companies getting back to their normal performance. Which industries are on your restructuring watch list and why? So. Over the the last year, we've seen these companies with virtually no revenue continue to access non-distressed debt and and even the equity markets. Companies like Six Flags and Cedar Fair, AMC, and that will have to end. After a year of being at home, we're definitely not going to see a return to the way people lived their lives before. There's definitely going to be an adjustment. And it's hard to see that whatever that return to normalcy is, hard to see that in-person entertainment looks the same as it used to. So we're certainly looking at those in-person entertainment type industries, the amusement parks, the movie theaters and the likes. And also as this pent up travel demand flushes through, I think many segments of the travel world will continue to struggle once again. And we're thinking about how do you reposition these companies? It's really crucial to understand the mix of businesses and and profitability. And without business travel, for example, it could be impossible to make some of these business models work. And what about mall operators? Do they have a future? Well, even before the pandemic, we had malls and retail really struggling. That move away from physical is going to be accelerating. Malls are trying to stay alive by buying up retailers to keep that space occupied. Uh, But the retailers probably were worth more for their names than for their operations, many of them at least. I I was advising some of the board members at Toys R Us three years ago, and it became clear that the brand name there was worth more than having physical locations. And we saw that with Sharper Image. We're seeing it now with Century 21 again. Uh, you know, just to name a few. And so that's going to put that continued pressure on retail leaving the mall space. The malls were actually doing a quite nice job 
of adapting to alternative uses. They were transitioning spaces to amusement and entertainment centers, for example, that we talked about a minute ago, or, or offices or apartment living. It's just really hard to see the return to the movie theater and trampoline uh, park trend that we had before the pandemic coming back. It's hard to see demands for more indoor office space or indoor apartments. So we are definitely expecting pressure on the mall owners and the mall operators. One thing we saw last year was the lender-on-lender violence, otherwise known as the non-prorata super-priority term loan. Do you expect to see that trend continue? Lender-on-lender violence is, is a symptom of desperation, and it's fueled by opportunism. Low interest rates are creating this demand, and covenant light is creating the opportunity. Uh, and another area that we're seeing these dynamics playing out is, is fees. We're seeing the fees piling on and, and for favored creditors and the consenting classes, backstop fees, support fees, early participation fees, professional fee reimbursements, and the list goes on. So you're definitely seeing this fight between the favored creditors, the ones that are coming to the table, and those who are, are dragging their feet and fighting. And if you're a creditor in this environment, it seems the real advantage now goes to the first mover. So definitely we'll, we will continue to see various forms of lender-on-lender violence as we go into, as we continue through this cycle. What about valuation fights or the credit bid? More to come or less to come? So right now, it's really the tale of two cities. Most companies are, are coming into bankruptcy with, with their buyer in hand. Uh, often it's someone in the capital structure losing, looking to juice up the returns, um, but just as likely we're, we're seeing new money. Uh, the, the true credit bid, the traditional senior lender who's been in the capital structure for a long time, we, we don't see that all that much um, anymore. And, and certainly now with these higher valuations that are being driven by the pent-up liquidity and the SPAC markets uh, are certainly contributing to that. But it is surprising to me that we're not seeing more on valuation fights. You would think that given all the future uncertainty, the lack of clarity about what your forecast should look like, it's really a ripe environment to fight over projections and multiples and and the normalization of earnings. We haven't seen it yet, perhaps just because the money's flowing. But I do think that there's a lot more to come in that regard. So how does an advisor think about valuation and growth forecasts when COVID has upended the company's business model? This can be the, a huge challenge. At that base, we, we need to understand the normalized results. We were advising recently a retailer that had really its best year in decades during the pandemic, simply because they had certain products that were pandemic-friendly, PPE and, and, and the like. And on one hand, valuation places a lot of weight on those recent results and the near-term performance. But at the same time, if the profits were really driven by one-off events, we really need to pull that out of our calculus to some extent. One way we would go about that is is forecasting in these uncertain environments is scenario analysis. It's quite common in the oil and gas industry for decades. You run how you do if oil prices do well and if they do poorly. How you do if you find oil or if you don't find oil and you 
analyze those scenarios. It's going to become more relevant than ever for your traditional company in this environment. We don't know what the future will hold, but now let's take a, a chance to look at, well, what if this was one-time performance and what if it wasn't and there's a su- sustainable bump here or sustainable decline? And I think scenario analysis is really the the wave of the future, if you will, for understanding a business model in the periods of uncertainty. And how should investors or companies look at industry multiples? So industry multiples, they're kind of like the iPhones of the valuation world. They're beautiful in their simplicity, but deceptively complex. To properly apply a multiple in an environment like this, you need to understand how COVID factors in, into, the multiple, into the earnings, both of your company and of the industry. Is it the same across the industry or are there distinctions? I, I fear in many cases, it's really too soon to get a good handle on that. And in traditional thinking, we would see investors assuming the worst across the board. But it seems like you know, since the middle of last March, really, the markets just assumed the best about every company, that you're going to come back to pre-pandemic levels and beyond. And at some point, the market is going to have to start discerning the winners and the losers. Do you see litigation activity picking up and why? When the party's over, the litigation's going to start. Dow's up nearly 50% in the last 12 months. So who needs litigation when the world is just printing money? But when the rally runs out of gas, we'll start to see companies that figure out how they made their numbers work in this environment. And that's when we'll get into litigation. Take a look at the LBO crazes of the past. Uh, the, the markets got very frothy. You do a deal at this high water mark, and then the deal busts, and then the litigation ensues. You know, I've worked in dozens of cases with that same profile, a case like Tribune or, or Nine West, where the litigation turns on what was a reasonable set of projections. When did it become clear that management wouldn't meet their numbers? And, and were valuation metrics real? It's always a good idea when you're in these markets, when you're trying to take advantage you know, of good market conditions, you need to have independent advisors at the table vetting your projections, opining on valuation. This especially is true in, in, in these markets where the environment can just change in an instant. Can you talk about green sale? the UK-based financial services company that filed for insolvency protection in March. And what does that tell us about the state of the market? So Greensill is a story of the lack of financial clarity finally catching up with with them. The investors we're speaking to are still trying to figure out who has which assets and, and how you could carve up loans the ways they did. I got into this industry 20 years ago when another company was exposed for their overly complex structures. I spent two and a half years advising the examiner in Enron unwinding structures like this. It's a flaw of the human condition that we're still making these same mistakes of lending into structures that are too complex to understand. But the untold story here is one of the few counterpoints to what we've been discussing on liquidity. 
Greensill relied on the liquidity of the market to keep rolling their debt, and that liquidity dried up, and that was the end of them. Archegos, also similar story. The banks finally had to say, no, we're not taking more risk for no return. They finally realized there was not enough transparency there, and the liquidity stopped. These could be isolated events, but I think they're starting to show us the cracks in the system, which are often emblematic of the larger problems. When money is free, we don't see the problems. When liquidity is tight, the hidden issues start to emerge. And that's what we're seeing with these two examples. More broadly, what are you hearing from investors and what advice are you giving them? Well, it's cold comfort to the professionals out there, but our Fund manager clients are not seeing a lot of distressed activity either. One manager told me that his distressed book is about a third of what it was pre-pandemic. Another told me they have absolutely nothing to look at. Uh, We see other fund clients uh, moving to distressed commercial real estate, where at least you have the opportunity to buy well and hold it till the, the recovery. We're encouraging them to exercise discipline. We're not lemmings. There's not enough time to understand the company and its operations, its capital structure. It's probably a deal you're better off avoiding. Liquidity, the lack of transparency, it's all just propping up something that's hiding. It's all propping up these companies that have problems lurking in the background. And the question is, where are you going to be when that all starts to fall out? David, I want to thank you so much for being here with us and providing us with your take on the current state of the market. It's been a pleasure to join you today, and we're looking forward to continuing these discussions. We're looking forward to helping our our clients um, understand where these risks are lying and, and helping the market get back to a period of greater transparency and a period in which the, the best companies can survive and the companies that need help go and seek that help and work out their balance sheet problems.